For the past 10 months, a single drug has captured its share of headlines. Aducanumab. 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 It'll also go by the brand name Aduhelm. 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 The FDA shocked the healthcare world last June, approving Aduhelm, also called Aducanumab. The evidence was limited. Some people with early onset Alzheimer's may decline more slowly, and the drug carried side effects, like brain bleeding. Not a single member of FDA's expert advisory committee voted to approve it, but the FDA did, and then drug maker Biogen priced the new drug. The treatment costs an average patient about $56,000 every year. Early this year, Medicare proposed only covering the drug for a tiny fraction of the million-plus people who could benefit, and in the first week of April, after months of lobbying, Medicare finalized its decision. Today, how one drug has forced the nation to re-examine how to balance desperate patients, incomplete evidence, and larger economic realities. From the studio at the Leonard Davis Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. So yesterday morning, the car was there at 9 o'clock, hopped in the car, drove to Tom's River, which is about an hour and a half away, sat there for about an hour and a half while the drug was infused, and got back in the car and <laughs> came home again. So it's about a four and a half, five hour adventure once a month. Phil Guttis has spent a few hours every month for much of the last five plus years sitting in a medical office getting Adahelm pumped into his arm. Phil enrolled in Biogen's randomized clinical trial for the drug almost immediately after he got his diagnosis of early-onset Alzheimer's at age 54. When Phil started, he was not sure whether he'd get the drug or placebo, but either way, he kept his hopes in check. The situation with Alzheimer's drugs was a junkyard, a junkyard of failed efforts and failed attempts. So I did not believe that aducanumab was going to make a difference. I participated in the trial because I didn't want my nephew and my nieces to have to deal with this. A couple of years into his diagnosis, Phil walked past a theater with his husband in their little Pennsylvania town, an hour north of Philadelphia. And I looked at him and I said, did we see a show here recently? And he said, yeah, Guys and Dolls. And I was like, huh. I don't remember. I don't remember guys and dolls at all. Tony, I got a, I got a lot more than money riding on this one. And he said, well, maybe go listen to some music, see if that helps. They call you Lady Luck, but there is room for doubt at times. Nothing, none of the music, nothing. And I remember sitting on my bed, I guess it was the next morning, and saying to him, it's coming, isn't it? And we both felt, yeah, it was coming. The decline had begun, and it was going to get worse from there. And yet before this evening is over, you Phil's 60 now, and he compares living with Alzheimer's to learning to walk on the ceiling. He forgets the names of his dogs, of restaurants he's been to. He forgot that he and his husband had recently redone their deck. But that decline he knew was coming that morning, the Marlon Brando show tune eluded him. That he's avoided. And he thanks Adahelm. 
I'm not perfect. It's not been a cure, but it's allowed me to continue to participate. I'm still talking. I'm still doing interviews. I can still write. None of that was guaranteed five years ago. Phil feels lucky. He believes Adahelm has delivered on its promise to slow his cognitive decline. That's why the public debate culminating in Medicare's final ruling last week has left Phil feeling invisible. I believe in science. I really believe in science. I understand science. (laughs) I understand that, you know, I'm just an anecdote. They need the data and stuff like that. But the reactions that we've seen to Adjahelm have just been almost borderline vicious. (laughs) And I know I'm not proof, but it's working. And just feeling that whole five years of my life just being dismissed because it's not statistically significant. The final decision from CMS was mostly the same as the proposal they put out in January. Medicare remains unconvinced that Adhelm actually works. So it says it will only pay for the drug for people enrolled in clinical trials to gather more evidence. The agency did make a few tweaks. First, it expanded coverage to include clinical trials approved by the FDA or National Institutes of Health, as well as trials run outside of hospitals. And second, it said future drugs that target Alzheimer's the same way Adahelm does could be covered by Medicare if those drugs have stronger evidence and go through FDA's traditional approval process. Opening it up to non-hospital setting I th- settings is important. There are a lot of people who don't live near major hospitals who maybe now will have access. I think opening the door to these other drugs that are coming in the pipeline is very important. So I, I think tweaking was the right word. They tweaked. They didn't listen. Um, again, they sort of just said, you know, sorry. Sorry, folks who really, if you feel this, this drug has helped you, sorry, we're just not persuaded. Phil and a few other people living with Alzheimer's actually asked for and got a meeting with Medicare in January. They shared their stories, why they wanted Adahelm to be covered, and Phil felt hopeful leaving the meeting. But at the end of the day, you know, it didn't change anything, obviously. But I do think it's important that as these conversations continue, and I know they will, that those of us living with this disease who are in the early stages, who can participate, need to be at the table. And do you feel like you've been at the table? think we're getting at the table, but still very shallowly. Phil thinks patient voices need to count for more in these kinds of decisions, that their experiences and perspectives have been too easily dismissed. And again, I believe in science. I really do. But that is the, that's the, the, the challenge, right? To believe in science, but to feel so strongly that that patient perspective just gets lost. And I don't know what the answer to it is, but that is in some ways the greatest frustration. Phil has two infusions of Adahelm left in his current trial. After that, he's hopeful he'll get into one of the new clinical trials. But if he can't, he says he'll probably pay for the drug himself, nearly $30,000 a year. 
I mean, I haven't made that final decision, but I think I will end up paying for it. Um, it'll be a hit into the uh, <laughs> reserves that we've been building for dealing with life and retirement and this disease. But if we have to, we'll, we'll pay for it. Um, feeling all along that, boy, this is unfair. Because <laughs> I am on Medicare and, you know, it's kind of a yet another punch to think, I'm on Medicare, I put in my money, <laughs> and, um, you know, when I needed it, it wasn't there. When we come back, what this decision could mean for the future of drug development in the U.S. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome back. Holly Fernandez Lynch spends a lot of time thinking about people like Phil. I really do have so much sympathy for patients who lack good treatment options and who are frustrated by this kind of decision. Holly is an assistant professor of medical ethics and law at the University of Pennsylvania. She studies the FDA drug approval process, particularly for conditions without existing treatments like Alzheimer's and ALS. These are areas where we've had a lot of dead ends in drug development. And so I've started thinking a lot um, about how these patients can access investigational products or products before we really have certainty that they are beneficial. As important as access is for patients with few, if any, options, Holly feels CMS made the right call by limiting coverage of Adahelm. CMS was left to clean up the mess from that mistake in approving Adahelm in the first place. Mess may be a strong word to describe the FDA greenlighting a drug, but the facts do raise questions. The FDA and Biogen work closely throughout the process, some argue too closely. The agency ignored the almost unanimous opinion of its expert advisors who wanted the FDA to block the drug, and the FDA used a process that requires less evidence, called accelerated approval, if that drug meets an unmet clinical need. It's really a great case study of all of these different areas of government regulation and the ways that things can go wrong, um, as well as the ways that I think on the, on the Medicare side, things can go right. Holly, have you, have you taught this case study yet to your students? I'm about to do it tonight. Are you really? <laughs> 
Yeah, I teach um, a health law and policy course for non-lawyers. It just so happened that I was teaching FDA law tonight. So we are going to be spending quite a bit of time on this case. And and what are the like take-homes for that class that you're hoping to give the students? So I'm using it um, both to demonstrate some concerns about FDA's regulatory standards and whether they are in fact getting weaker over time and how we should expect the regulator to balance speed and certainty, right, and talking about the different kinds of errors that can happen, right? You can err in going too slow and withholding a product that could be potentially beneficial. You can err in going too fast, right, and, you know, putting something on the market before we are confident that it works. And in particular, this drug, this Aduhelm drug, has some significant safety concerns associated with it. In Biogen's clinical trials for Aduhelm, four out of ten patients experience either brain swelling or bleeding. Only a few cases were serious enough to force the patients out of the trial and off the drug. And then we're going to be using it to talk more about drug pricing, right? And why do we find ourselves in this position of, you know, really being held hostage to what the company says the price is going to be, right? First, they say $56,000, then they say $28,000 because they see the writing on the wall that people are upset um, that this product got approved in the first place. But why is it that Medicare can't negotiate prices? And what can payers do to force companies to produce evidence when... FDA as a regulator seems to be falling down, you know, in that regard. It's really interesting. I wish I was auditing that class. <laughs> um, so w- what does this whole at a helm experience mean for the future of Alzheimer's drugs? So, you know, there are a couple of other drugs in the nearing, you know, submission to FDA. I don't suspect that companies are going to that are so far along in the process are going to pull their drugs back and say, forget it. We're just going to ditch this thing that we've already put loads and loads of money into, right? But I do think it will have an impact on the on the landscape, um, not only in Alzheimer's, but across drug developers about what government regulators are going to be willing to put up with, right? So if FDA standards remain low, then payers, whether it's Medicare or private insurers are going to say, no, we need more evidence for this. Now, FDA, they would really object to me saying they're lowering their standards, right? What they say is, no, the statutory standard is the same. It's safe and effective for its intended use. We just have flexibility in the kind of data that can be used to meet that standard. But, you know, flexibility around the data means that they are accepting weaker data for approval. You bring up how this could impact the broader drug development landscape in the U.S., Holly. Let's talk more about that. I know you think there are three specific areas where we may see some real change as a result of this at-home experience. The first, right, is with the accelerated approval process that we mentioned earlier. Yeah, Accelerated approval was supposed to be this trade-off. Early access, evidence later, if the evidence doesn't come through, we get the products off the market. The challenges around that is that companies are not getting their confirmatory trials done or they're not getting them done quickly enough, or even when they get them done, if the evidence doesn't support the product being beneficial to patients, FDA has a hard time pulling the products off the market. The whole idea is that In exchange for getting a drug to market faster, companies gather more evidence and then the FDA pulls the drug if it's not really working. You're saying that's not happening, which seems troubling. 
How is Adhelm changing the conversation around this, do you think? This was something that um, those of us, you know, kind of in academia and regulatory wonks have been paying attention to for a while now, concerns that the accelerated approval pathway was going too far. And now I think that the real change is that you have policymakers who are saying we need to do something about this pathway because what it's allowed um, is a reduction in the evidentiary basis for, for drug approval. So I think that the conversation has changed by drawing attention to this and you know pushing policymakers to come up with some concrete reforms that I think um, are very likely to, to pass. Like what? Some of the reform proposals are to push companies to have their confirmatory studies designed and approved by FDA before the accelerated approval is issued to get your confirmatory trials done within a certain period of time, three years, five years, or your accelerated approval is going to automatically expire. And then the last thing I'll mention is trying to make it easier for FDA to withdraw products if they fail to demonstrate benefit. Let's move on to this second piece that you think could really change as a result of Adahelm, the role of payers like Medicare in determining who gets access to the new drugs. Historically, if the FDA approved a drug, Medicare paid for it, full stop. Now that that's different, uh, do you think we're likely to see more of that going forward? Absolutely. We have people talking about drug prices and all the ways that the government should be reining in drug prices and allowing Medicare to negotiate on price is something that a lot of people have been talking about, right? Value-based pricing seems to be a great compromise, meaning that we are only going to pay for your drug um, if, if it demonstrates benefit. If you fail to do so, we're going to pay less until you demonstrate that this is a good thing for patients. And, and, and you really feel like Adahelm might be the straw that breaks the camel's back in how we have paid for drugs here, heretofore? I, th- I think so, right? I mean, there was just so much controversy around the price that Biogen picked for this drug and this concern that they could just pull a number out of thin air, right? It was not based on their research and development costs, for example. It was based on what they thought the market would bear, and they were wrong about it. Right. Um, But we can't always rely on this level of outrage to force a company to reduce its price. I think the government is going to have to step in. So let's get to your last big takeaway, Holly, the role of patients and patient advocacy groups. Atacanamab has really put a spotlight on this. And we've talked with several patients, including Phil at the top of this episode, who spoke powerfully and forcefully about why he wants Medicare to pay for the drug. We also know groups like the Alzheimer's Association have lobbied hard to get Adahem covered. How, how do you see the patient's role in all of this? Patient perspectives is something that Congress has explicitly told FDA that it must do. And there's not a lot of clarity about what that means, right? So it's what I think is clearest is if you have a question about whether a particular benefit is a meaningful benefit to patients, right? That is something where it's very valuable to hear from patients. It's less valuable, in my opinion, to hear from patients, you should approve this drug because we have nothing better. 
because what that means is that the regulatory standard would be, okay, if there's no other treatment options, you know, let's just let her rip on the market and we'll just, you know, provide things that have some, you know, glimmer of hope. Because what we really would hate to have is a circumstance where patients today, they can try things with without certainty and Patients who get diagnosed with the same disease 10 years from now are stuck in the exact same position because companies have not been forced to produce that evidence that would lead to benefit and improvement over time. What do you base that assumption on, that we will see innovation stagnate? So FDA stands as a gatekeeper and says to companies, you cannot market your product until we say that you've convinced us that it's safe and effective, forces companies to produce that information that the market alone, based on history, has demonstrated they will not produce. So if we as patients and you know our clinicians want evidence about what is actually going to be a good option for us, We need regulators to push companies to produce those data, right? Otherwise, we are going to potentially be in a world where we have a lot of options, but we don't know which of those options are good because we won't have the data available to us to help inform those decisions. And final question, Holly. I mean, you've been having conversations about drugs and prices and access for probably about 15 years now, maybe even 20 years. As a result of the approval of Adahelm, are people having different conversations? The people you talk to, these insiders, these wonks, these drug makers, these policy folks. I think we're seeing, you know, a real (laughs) glimmer that something might actually change politically. This is not necessarily like a win-win circumstance. Like there are going to be um, people who feel like they are losing out in, in these scenarios. And it's challenging to think about from a policy perspective that we have to, you know, we have to make standards that apply to whole populations and the whole pharmaceutical industry. There are patients who have desperately unmet treatment needs, but I, I would say that the the way to address their challenges is not to reduce the evidentiary requirements because what we want, right, are drugs that work, not just drugs. Holly, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on Tradeoffs. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. There's one more big question facing CMS about Adahelm. Biogen's $56,000 a year price tag pushed Medicare to hike premiums of Part B, which covers drugs like Adahelm that are administered in a doctor's office by about 15%, way more than normal. But now that Biogen has cut the price almost in half and CMS has limited its coverage, HHS is considering lowering premiums. A decision could come any day. I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. Over the last 10 years, insulin prices have climbed by more than 100%. And right now, a single vial can run anywhere from $300 to $1,000. Bipartisan momentum appears to be building in Washington to make the drug more accessible for the nearly 2 million people who need it to survive. Insulin prices as a salient political issue is new. 
and it's been growing exponentially. We'll explore the latest push by lawmakers to wrangle insulin prices and what can happen when you can't afford your medicine. That's next time on Tradeoffs. If you enjoyed today's episode of Tradeoffs, don't keep it to yourself. Tell someone else about it. Friend, colleague, family member. Better still, leave a rating or a review wherever you subscribe to us. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, etc. The Tradeoffs team is producers Ryan Levy and Andrea Perdomo, Executive Director Jessica Silverman, Communications Manager Nora Tahiri, Senior Health Policy Editor Sarah Thomas, Sound Designer Andrew Perella, Executive Editor Dan Gorenstein, and Senior Producer Leslie Walker. The Tradeoffs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music this episode from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Tradeoffs' coverage of healthcare costs is supported in part by Arnold Ventures and West Health. Special thanks this week to Amit Sarpatwari. Additional thanks to Sean Dixon. Thanks also to all our listeners who helped to support our work, including Marcy Billetter, Almeta Russell, and Alex Small. Tradeoffs is supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Arnold Ventures, West Health, the Better Care Playbook, the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, the Sozose Foundation, and the National Institute for Healthcare Management Foundation. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of Tradeoffs staff, advisors, or funders. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.